is that no I'm still here faithful listeners I am still here to bring my madness and mental ramblings to you but today in the form of a genuine episode yes uh welcome back anyone who is a continuing listener and welcome to the show if you're happen to be brand new um I have not fallen off the face of the earth things did get a little bit rough a couple of months ago any of you who are keen avid listeners will know that uh, I uploaded a little bit of a psyche rant a couple of months ago but I'm going to come back to that in a few moments before that though just to remind you all get in touch with me highsidepod at gmail.com is the email address and if you want to get in touch with me through the Facebook page you can do that that Facebook page is humanity in science Um, but today's guest today's guest is Dwayne Spiteri someone I have known on and off which is a very very loose way to say it for three years he started his PhD with me but I never really spoke to him I met him at a couple of induction events and kind of wrote him off as uh, as someone who would be annoying which maybe at the time would have been true but uh, I have matured and I suppose mellowed a little bit you'll hear it in the show I distinctly wrote him off as being someone I wouldn't get on with because he was too happy so um, that kind of cost me three years of half decent conversation with somebody else being a little bit bitter and cynical about my state of play, I suppose. But uh, we have a good talk. Dwayne has a great talk with me about all sorts of things, how he got into physics and science and university life, what it's like working a big collaboration. I think most importantly, the most important thing we touch on is uh, the need for a sense of real genuine support and social community within academia, particularly for PhD students, which funnily enough does tie into a little psyche rant that I had a couple of months ago you know um, we need to sort of support each other look after each other a little bit more Dwayne makes a very good comment about actually speaking to people and sort of asking them how are you doing are you okay are things all right is it getting a bit much something I think I've tried to do in the past but not quite as dedicated or uh seriously as uh, as Dwayne has so I think that's something I'm gonna have to look into a bit more on a personal note I mean I gotta look out for people and you should look out for other people too because it's nice to be good isn't that what it's all about it's nice to be good especially when things get stressful things get a little bit tough which is gonna happen to me because not only do I have to really start thinking seriously about jobs and grad schemes and careers and the rest of my life I've got a thesis to write, and that has started. I have started writing my thesis, the great big monster document that's going to dominate my life for the next year, effectively. It has begun. The dread is washing over me. The terror is coming, and I have to expel it. That's a lovely way to put it and a charming way to start this conversation. So uh, on that rather dark, dreary note which unfortunately will be my life. Um, He says, knowing how that sounds, it's okay, I'm fine, people. I'm all right today. I will now lead you into my conversation with Dwayne Spiteri. 
you told me that? Uh, no, but um, this is probably the, the first time we've had sat down and had a nice like one-to-one conversation. See, isn't that weird? That like in physics we wouldn't do this. We wouldn't sit down and talk to people. Doesn't that strike you as odd about social and human engagement? I I will actually. I probably want to go into that into a bit detail later. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I've got that. I've got that sitting here. I've I've made like a list of I, things to work through. Because I I have I have some ideas in terms in terms of that. But no, I think occasionally it can happen. It's just the fact that I say we're interdisciplinary, but we're both physicists. But yeah, you're on the sixth floor and I'm on the fourth floor. And partly the only reason that I know that you exist is because you are in the same office as a colleague of ours, Nicholas. Yeah. And I know Nicolina from the Burns trip in first year. Oh, okay. I thought you would have known each other through Dan. Um, yeah, I mean, I... Because I think they knew, they knew each other through Andrew in the last year or two year. Because Nicolina's only been here since the, the Masters year. And I assumed that that went to particle physics and then you sort of mingled within yourselves later on. And then that's how you guys have sort of like bled into each other. But I mean, obviously I'm wrong. It's just one of these things where, like, I I found like two people almost independently, and they're like, "Ah, oh, you guys, you know these guys from this." One. I know it's oh, weird. We never we never seem to go out of our way to meet people. It always just seems to be a sort of happenstance or cure. Oh, and then it's like three years have gone by, and you thought, you mean I could have been speaking to people for three years that I just seem to kind of like. I recognize your yeah. face from somewhere. Did I did I see you in the uh, introductory session? Yeah, it would have been. Year? Yeah, yeah, it would have been. I remember looking at that guy, he's too fucking happy. <laughs> and then just like, I'm not talking to him again. And then lo and behold, here we are. But um, so how did you get into physics anyway? Well, I would have started getting into physics probably, I think it was year 10. So Which for, is, and wait, 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 how old are you then? So currently I'm 24. Right, okay. Wow, you're quite young. Well, I turned 25 in a couple of weeks. But okay. I think um, in previous podcasts like depending on like where you were saying which part you come from so i come from england and the cut yes, of the school is august right so that means that i'm born in july and one of the youngest in right okay so we had the same sort of thing we had two guys who were split i think the cutoff date was like the third of july or something and one guy was born on the fourth and one guy was born on the third and because of that they were both almost an entire year separated in age but just a curiosity of the cutoff so year 10, like... like um, so that's the GCSE year. The GCSE, is it? Right, okay, so yeah, so 14, that's, so 15, uh, yeah, 16. Yeah, kind of 15, 16. Okay, right. And so specifically uh, the GCSE. So the way this works is that after primary school, you've got secondary school, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the first few years, the first three years are um, you're doing SATs, actually. You had SATs? We, our year was the last year to have SATs. We had, up until... I, know, I always look at the door thinking someone's about to come in, but we had key stage three exams. Up until the year that I was due to take them and they didn't do them anymore. And they sort of assessed your first three years of secondary school at English, mathematics and science. But it was just general science. So biology, chemistry and physics were all rolled into one for that one exam. And then you did your GCSEs, which are the equivalent of what your NAT 5 or something it's called here. Now. I don't know. But I mean, your, your 15-year-old, 16-year-old yeah, exams. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's when you picked it up. That's when I picked it up. I mean, so... It's so this is semi important because um, we had SATs in year nine, right? And year nine was about two thousand eight for me, and that was the time I moved from um, from London to Birmingham. Right. Okay. That's why the accent throws me. So this is the thing. So I, I was born and raised in London. Uh huh. 
and then I moved to Birmingham right. in my teenage years. Right, okay. And the thing is, they were still having sats in year nine. So that was an incredibly right, stressful okay. move for me. And then they went right. to abolish them next year, and I was like, what the fuck? Like, uh, yeah, if you win it a year, well, if you win it a year, wouldn't have been a difference either way. But yeah, you was, just got hit with this big exam all yeah, of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, so the main focus of the Sats was English, maths, and science. Right. Okay. And I enjoyed this the sat the science part of that. Right. And I was very good at the maths part because when I moved to Birmingham, um, they had put me in some sets because I had been off school for three months. I right. hadn't really been in that much education. Mm-hmm. Um, they were kind of waiting for me to get into like a, a semi-decent school. And then so they throw me in. They give me a brief assessment of my academic ability and they just lump me in some classes. Right. And then it comes quickly that they've made a couple of mistakes and then I could, I excel in some fields. Okay. And so they move me up. And uh, one of them was maths, actually. So right. they put me in, like, the second set because the first set was, like, fast track. Okay. So the first track one is the ones that do GCSE a year earlier. Right, okay, right. And that's a bit unusual for me. I actually enjoy that because now most schools are moving to that because they don't actually have the SATs year in year nine. Right, okay. So then yeah, what yeah. happens is you basically, you learn some interesting stuff, you learn the GCSEs a bit earlier. And okay. then the SATs you know, has its pros and its cons, but then the disadvantage of something like the SATs, for example, is that you're, if if the national curriculum is there just to design to get schools look good, you're yeah. not necessarily learning the right things. Mm. And then you're not learning things that become useful for taking on subjects later on. So GCSEs are a better form of standardization than SATs because SATs are basically there to directly compare schools to schools and we're basically just almost a fictitious like an extra test you put on yeah okay and where gccs you actually use to then determine colleges to do a levels and such and Mm -hmm. such but anyway so year 10 it was physics it was we moved from science to doing triple science so you do physics chemistry biology separately Uh and some of the topics you started covering there like radioactivity uh really interested me yeah and and I was actually quite good at physics. It helped that I was also good at maths as well. Yeah. And so I was good at maths and I was good at physics. And then I ended up taking both of those to A-level. Right. Okay. Why was that? Just a natural interest in it? Or was it like a... I think that a lot of people find that it was because they're a combination of them being good at it and a teacher that kind of inspired them to actually want to go to the class. Whereas I think when you're, when you're 14, 15 years old and you can't be asked to go to the school... If you've got a crappy teacher, you don't necessarily want to put in an effort for that class. At least that's my take on it. I think, yeah, an inspiring teacher can really push you forward. But you didn't have that. I would say A-level, because I moved school from GCC to A-level, and I would say my A-level teacher was certainly the inspiring choice that pushed me to do physics. Because at the point of the GCSE, I knew I liked physics and I was good at it. But at that point, I could have just been a scientist or an engineer. Yeah, okay. There wasn't anything intrinsic to physics that made you want to no, specifically pursue it. If you asked me at the age of 16, I could have said I could have been a nuclear physicist. And then that was just like mm. an umbrella park of all things that could have gone for like nuclear, a bit of physics, a bit of engineering, uh-huh, something, yeah. something massive. But when you're 15, you don't know what you want to really do. You kind of just think, oh, I'm good at this subject. I'll keep doing it. Yeah. And the careers advisor just sort of says, yeah, you can do some good degrees out of that. And you sort of follow it along. It's true. Yeah. So that's why I, that's why I, you know, 
essentially got oh yeah yeah you can go places with that and then you just you just do it and they, you're out of their hair for a bit it's whenever the kid comes in and he's struggling with classes you think well, what are we going to do with this one so you took it to uni um took it to uni. just because good at it inspiring teacher what what exactly was it that was inspiring about the teacher yeah well it's because so it's it's quite easy to teach a curriculum but yeah. it requires a special skill to make that curriculum interesting and to go sort of like above and beyond um, the sort of the, the teacher call of duty to make uh, people who are interested in the subject go out and do other things because this mm-hmm. is the thing. So at the age of 16, I think the, one of the first popular science books I read was actually by, I think, Brian Cox and Jeff Borsh, for Jeff Forshaw, which is why does E equals MC squared. And that's like a popular science book. And I read that at the age of 15. I thought this is a really interesting. And it actually does help. If you find that you like something in school, mm-hmm. one of the best ways to actually try to keep that interest is to make sure you're doing something along some sort of lines outside. Hmm. Whether it's work experience in year 10 or 11, yeah. or whether you just go to someone that you know, well, I say at university, but that's quite a relatively privileged thing to say. Yeah. But I didn't know any, I didn't have any university contacts before, but I mm-hmm. talked to someone at the school and they sent me an email. Yeah. And then it, it, can, it can start off something small. Like you go to your science teacher, you ask about um, various emails and that. And, yeah. and it's honestly quite easy. And one of the things I'm doing in my PhD actually is actually trying to make it easier for school children to contact members of academia. Right, okay. So one of the things that I'm doing now is, so the experiment that I work on for my PhD, so this is like jumping from yeah. the back a bit, but the experiment I'm working forward on my PhD is called the Atlas Experiment. Mm-hmm. It's um, on the Large Hadron Collider, so it's based at CERN, and it's a very big collaboration. There must be like 3,000 scientists on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the UK is the third largest provider of scientific instrument behind Germany and the United States for said experiment. So it's quite a big... I didn't actually know the US was quite so heavily involved in it. US is hugely involved. You know, it's, I assumed that it was mostly it's a just European not a member venture. State. Right. Because the member state the requires thing. a payment of certain, I think, proportion to GDP. And for like the United yeah. States, that's too big. So they just send a lot of like like money and other grants. But, yeah. But either way, mm-hmm. so the UK is quite big. Yeah. And so we have... Um, so I helped start up what's called the Virtual Visit Program, which is basically a live link. So you're, I'm at CERN, yeah. or someone's at CERN, and we have a link some by some sort of video conferencing software, mm-hmm. which all the other required need is like a laptop and a stable interconnection. Yeah. And you've got a direct link between a class of 20 or 30 um, students and a real-life scientist at CERN. Huh. That is actually very useful and engaging like i can imagine like kids at school not quite flocking to it but if you've got like an a-level class of kids that are like interested in physics you can just load up the internet connection and and, and get in touch with someone who's really doing the work and you can ask them about what you've pretty much just covered in the past hour it's so easy to do and it's easy yeah it is effectively just like it's 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 a webcam thing Uh, that's all it is it's Basically, only literally. Why did no one do this before? Well, there have been so the Atlas collaboration have done these before. Yeah. Um, and certain groups have them, and certain groups are bigger than others. So there's like Mm. a nice Portuguese one as well, which um is like helping people in Latin America. So famously, um, scientifically like um deprived countries, as it were. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. 
certain aspects, particle physics especially. So yeah, we've got South because America. it's just so much such an expensive venture, you know, you, you can't necessarily. Well, they do, do it have a lot of astronomy around there because well, that, got some yeah, amazing stuff. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of astro stuff, but the, but um, you know, particle physics and accelerators and stuff. It's a lot of money and a lot of space. They maybe sure. got the space, but they may not have the money to. to do so it. they have to be more open to collaboration. But I think one of the reasons why it's not just been done before is just because it it lacks. Everyone's quite busy and you've got to make some time. And it just requires a couple of people to be in the right place with the right motivation. Yeah, I guess. And so. to get it and to set the ball rolling. And this is the most important thing, to set it up. But if I yes. leave my PhD in 18 months, I'd mm-hmm. like this to continue, which is why I'm trying to work with people in... Um, but the thing is, you can get in touch with certain people and, you know, the institution of CERN will not, you know... Dismantle itself, you know. Yeah. In eighteen months, it'll still be there. So if you get, as long as you get a couple of people there, hopefully it should keep breathing. Oh, exactly, exactly. And that's that's the idea. But it's just something that's very easy to just like have momentum. Well, like you to said, it's going. easy. It's just making a regular thing of it, or making sure it's available. But you said you managed this outreach thing as a way of engaging with Schools, students. Yes. So, which is how you got into inspired to take well, the university. Well, it's, it's essentially like um, you need to do things outside the classroom. Yeah. And you need to get an interest outside the classroom, really, to go into that. Mm-hmm. And so then when I went to university, um, I when I was looking around, I actually looked at engineering, I looked at maths, and I looked at physics. So I went mm-hmm. around, I must have been like nine universities on... Really? Uh, yeah, I think. Cause nine? I, I, I went to Birmingham. I went to Warwick. I did like the local university because yeah. I lived in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. I went down to, um, I think, a couple of the London ones. I think I went to Imperial and yeah. UCL. I guess you knew London, so it was kind of familiar. Yeah, I, I met with a couple of people, made a day of it. And because mm-hmm. I was visiting three departments in a single day, it was quite, quite Yeah, it was pretty intense, stuff. yeah. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what attracted me to physics as an undergraduate was that it was so varied that mm-hmm. I was quite good at a lot of things and if I went to specifically like chemical engineering or engineering civil engineering or maths mm-hmm. it was only focusing on a specific part that I liked yeah whereas physics has it has a bit of coding it has a bit of like lab work it has some mathematics skills it does actually have a lot of that has, I didn't quite consider that. It's, but yeah. it's very worried. It's like a, a a light maths, light engineering, light computer science and physics. And unless course. you're going into a super technical role after your degree, you don't necessarily need to be incredibly well versed in coding or mathematics or no. But not one, one of the things that the University of Birmingham does quite is well is that where you went in the end. That's where they went in the end. Is yeah, small plug for the uni there. Whoop whoop. It's <laughs> it's the fact that um, you can actually do. Um, uh, what's um, inter? Um, I don't want to say intercranial. That's not the right word. Intercalated. Uh, intercalated. That's it. Intercalated years. Right. And so a few of my friends did an intercalated year in the computer science. Um, right. You could do an intercalated year. You could do a year abroad. You could essentially it was advertised that you could, if you found something in physics that you liked and you were good at, you mm-hmm. could do a year. In was that. this encouraged heavily? This was the. Uh, the uh, it was encouraged by the people and by the amount of people that actually did it. So right. I think the most popular inter... Um, collated. Collated, <laughs> really, that's the word. Uh, one was the computer science program. And so you do huh. a, a master's year in that and then you come back and do physics. And when did most people take this year? So it was after the... It was between their third and fourth years. Right, so they've actually got some coding experience behind them at this point, and they might realize that this is something I should work on exactly. for my final year. And then they come back in the last year of physics. Right, okay. So we do four years in... So in for that, us, that would probably England. be between 
that would be between our fourth and fifth years. At which point you've had four years to figure a few things out, see what you don't like, see what you do, see what you need more help on. Mm-hmm. That's actually pretty good. I just think it, it seems like it's quite late in the degree. Well, the thing is, so the first year is basically you're learning physics. And the first and second yeah. is like introductory basic stuff. Yeah. And by the time you're actually learning things that are pushing the boat out more specialized, yeah. you're in third year. And yeah, so you finish okay. your third year and you decide that you want to try and go on. And mm-hmm. because uh, the way the f- it's structured, the fourth year is mainly the project. Yeah. So okay. you do a, a research-based project, which takes essentially pretty much half the year mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of time and credits as well. Yeah. We and so you're going to come back from a year in computer science armed to the teeth with computing knowledge maybe even more so to be able to do said project and maybe actively engage in a way you couldn't in a different way and did you i'm assuming you did a a project in the end um on particle physics so yes so um i entered the university of birmingham and i did a particle physics degree so it was one of the few places in the country that did it um, I think Manchester was the other one. That so why there. particle physics straight away? Why did you make that decision like right out of the gate? Well, this this is one of the things about reading around the subject. So by the time I had reached university, I'd, got, I'd gone through, I'd gone through A level, had a really inspired physics teacher, really yeah. enjoyed AQA Physics One, which is about particle physics. Mm-hmm. At that point, I um, I'd decided to read up around particle physics specifically, mm-hmm. and then I was basically looking up, and then. The question when I got to looking around at university was, A, does this have a particle physics specific course? Mm -hmm. And B, does it detract me from other options? And the answer to those two questions was yes and no, because so Birmingham and Manchester had them. And the answer was, well, the course is so similar in the first two years that if you decide you can just change. I think that's incredibly valuable. We do the same sort of thing here where provided you don't totally box yourself off doing something very, very specific. You can pretty much change anything, which I think is pretty important because a lot, I mean, let's be honest, did, did any of us really know what we wanted to do whenever we showed? Well, it seems like you did because now you're doing stuff for the LHC and, you know, six, seven years ago, you kind of had it in your head that I think it was particle quite physics was the thing. I mean, because the thing is, there's, there's knowing what you want to do and there's also enjoying it as well. Because mm, yeah. I, I, I cannot count the number of fellow physicists that were really enthused about physics year one, but come end of third year, end of fourth year, like, oh, I just want to be, I just want to be done. Just, yeah, let's just, just finish oh, this, yeah. Just, just finish this out. I don't, I don't care anymore. Like, people enter for the wrong reasons. And even if they enter for the right reasons, it might not be just what's for them. Yeah, I'm noticing that. I think a lot of people doing PhDs are kind of noticing that. As well. It's so different to undergrad. Undergrad, you can, you can sort of excel at if you are good at taking in information, working with it, understanding it, and then spitting it out. But actually working with it in practice and maybe exploiting and using a variety of skills like coding, like, you know, mathematical work and maybe some data analysis and using this funny, weird language you've never heard of before. Whenever you're using them all together, it kind of drives you batty, which is where I'm at. Hmm. So maybe people have figured that out or experienced that in their undergrad years. I know some people who did that. I know people who did undergraduate degrees in physics and then kind of figured out, nah, engineering is more my speed. You know, Jim, you probably you listened to it, yeah. I think. He definitely, you know, noticed that. So maybe it's just not having the distinction between physics and engineering. Quite as clear, maybe, as it is. Maybe engineers don't lend themselves too much to the physics side. Of it. Or maybe physics is just dressed up the wrong way for 18-year-olds. 
by and large, with some exceptions, I honestly think in STEM, those were becoming so interdisciplinary now that some of those distinctions might just not be meaningful anymore. And the reason why I say this, so I decided to do particle physics. Yeah. And right now in the particle physics department, we're here at Glasgow. Yeah. And there were kind of like th- uh, three or four tiers of physics of particle physicists in okay. quotation brackets. Right. There's the theorists. Yeah. Which are the closest to the mathematical minded. Yeah. Um, then there is what we call the analysis students, like I'm one of themselves, and mm. they, um, they're not as theoretically minded. They're more practical. They're based at an experiment, mm-hmm. and we do a lot of code work, and so we're data analysis. Um, and then you've got the particle physics uh, detectors which basically is essentially electronic engineering because there's very hands-on work. There's a lot of things to do with, okay, you can know the physics, but at the end of the day, your day-to-day work is creating PCBs, putting things into our Arduinos, um, testing like wafers, even though they have, they're going to be used in a particle physics context. Essentially, That's not what they're thinking about day-to-day. No. No, yeah. I think... That's quite surprising. I think the LIGO stuff guys, they uh, and the, the IGR fellas, uh, for the most part, that's what a lot of them are doing. They're testing one very, very specific thing. And the grand scheme of, of things, all the gravitational wave stuff is maybe a bit lost on them because they don't need to think about it. I mean, maybe the theory guys have to think about that, but you're working with the nuts and bolts theory. The, guys the day-to-day who are is very different. Very, from, very from different. The, from the abstract. I mean, let, let's be honest, the only time those guys are going to have to think about a particular particle decay or whatever else is going to be writing their thesis. Yeah. It'll be in the introduction and then they'll say, oh, is that what I'm doing? And then they'll kind of turn the page and go, right, that's... that's but that's... They won't even... Yeah. It will maybe come up in the viper, but if you're primarily judged on... Unless you want to go into some specific niche of like theoretical academia, your yeah. parameter could work that you have done. Yeah. And so, okay, if you're not as much up to speed on your theory as you should be, well, maybe you get something in your favor, but if you know exactly what you have done and how you have contributed and how it fits mm-hmm. in, that's a lot That's a lot better. And in terms of transferable skills, that's what employers are going to want. Well, that's what PhDs are really about in the UK. It's about developing a set of skills and then taking it out into industry. It's not necessarily explicitly and exclusively about getting yourself an academic position afterwards because the numbers as they exist now um, don't indicate that many of us are going to get no, it, it doesn't indicate that many positions. of us stick around either. What but is it, like 5% chance that a PhD student... I think 5% student... is the one where you go all the way up to the top. Yeah, that's what but I was thinking. But then people that, I think, postdocs, it's closer to something like... Maybe 40 or 50%. Yeah, exactly. But that's, that's at least half leave. That's, that's half. That's one in every two. What's, the, what's that person supposed but to do? But if the PhD is flexible enough to allow people that want to go into academia or industry to do the same yeah. format, then it's... it's I think expected. by second year, you kind of know what you're going to do. And then you've got like a year and a half to kind of figure out, well, where do I want to sort of, not quite specialise, but are there any skills or practical things I should be working on to improve my CV in the meantime, instead of focusing on the work all the time, is there anything else I can do? That's why I did this for the most part. To try and, you know, exercise a different set of skills, show a sort of interpersonal nature, um, show that I can do something entirely different and for the most part, get it off the ground and get it working. You know, take to something new, taking the soft skills that come with being a physicist and putting them into to practice. 
that's not necessarily advertised though no i completely agree by by second year if your phd is going well and this is a very important stipulation yeah and well has a lot of asterisks next to it yes as well, you can then start looking at broadening your phd skills i mean your supervisor and your environment and mm-hmm. your department is supposed to be aware of the requirements of the phd and is supposed to maybe somehow step in if you're being short-sighted by work or not things going as quickly as you yeah. think and for particle physics because i'm funded by um stfc mm-hmm. and we get a travel grant yeah and Every STFC-funded student, whether it's particle physics or whether it's astronomy, mm-hmm. um, will have the option of going to academic conferences where you do get certain skills. And yeah. and whether it be giving a talk uh, of an academic nature or presenting a poster, mm-hmm. these things are important. And then you're traveling to other places and doing so as well. Yeah. Um, what is actually important, and I think the best and the most crucial part of my PhD is the long-term attachment. Yeah, is that was that to... to so um, I was Atlas. at CERN. Yeah. Um, because my the X one that I'm working at, Atlas, is based in Switzerland. Yeah. So that, and that's where and that's where the... It all is. CERN is. Well, actually, it runs actually through a lot of France. Yeah, it's, it's over the border, but that's, that's all because... All, all the good stuff is in Switzerland. Yeah, okay. Well, that's where the door is. That's where the door that's is. Where that's, the door that's, is. Where you, that's where you enter. That's where you get in and out. Um, um, how did you find that? I was over there for 18 months. That's a long time. It is a long time. Most but people are there for what, four, six months? Well, so this is the thing about the long-term attachment is anything from four to 18 months now. Oh, so it used to be four to 24. It used to be four to 24 and they changed it for our year as well. Right, why was that? Oh, probably Too just, much time, not enough work done? No, I think in terms of particle physicists, depending on what aspect of the PhD or what part of it you're in, being at CERN is probably better than being at Glasgow. Okay. Because all of the expertise, the majority of the expertise that you'll want to liaise with. The hands-on expertise, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you can converse someone via email or via oh, it's Slack not the same. or via Skype, but someone sitting down with you it's not one-to-one same, yeah. one face-to-face is, is a lot better. Yeah, if you can have someone with a blackboard and a piece of paper showing you whatever else, you know, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, blackboard, piece of paper, a second pair of eyes to go over your code, yes. the majority of it. Actually, sitting there in meetings is pretty good because it helps you get visibility. And you get to see people. You get to it's, see a, people. it's an opportunity to network a little bit instead of meeting them once at a conference every, what, eight months or so. And then, you know, think, oh, that's the guy. You know, if you're, if you're working with them day to day, there's an opportunity to very easily collaborate on some other feature or phenomenon or whatever, you know. But there's, there's, there's two other aspects as well mm-hmm. being based out there. The first one is you're able to actually provide hands-on support for the detector because if you're just based um elsewhere and Mm -hmm. you never really get involved then you don't really know about how the detector works i mean you can look it up but then it's nice to have that hands-on experience and Mm -hmm. if you go to cern you can help vacuum the detector um, chamber so you got you get the nice you actually suit you do yeah the, so the, when the, you said hands-on you actually meant really like getting in a you getting in a really suit get, getting in a suit and, and cleaning it up yourself um huh. there's if you working on hardware you can um you can get to be in some sort of like data testing which you test some parts huh. of the module um or you could do what um, i and most people do is you take shifts on the actual control so I, sitting, I, I swear to god there wasn't there, an f in that word <laughs> you're sitting 
in the control room and you basically just get to see the detective running live. It's taking events, it's taking huh. data and you're there like controlling things, reporting problems that go on. And so that the really operational aspect of that is did, important. Did that actually improve your experience over the PhD as a whole? Like did that like not quite put the icing on the cake, but like did that put everything in context? Was that singular event being in the control room put everything in context what you were doing? It really just shows that you matter to the experiment. Hmm. Because I, I will tell you that when I was doing the the, the night shifts, uh, I was the only person in the control room. And at one time uh-huh. when I came in, there was a thunderstorm which took out one of the uh, auxiliary power switches and everything went red. And I was uh. like, I was trained for this. <laughs> and we're going to call someone else <laughs> to find the problem. And it was manic. Uh, two hours, everyone was coming in. We were testing to see if everything was damaged. Yeah. We, had to sugar, we had to check to back up diesel. It was, it was, it was, at the time, it was a bit worrying. Because you were the guy. that uh, I was the I've guy. I just got here. I'm in there. Well, I, I, that was not my first shift. Luckily okay, enough for me. Yeah. So I, I, done that before but i was the only person in the room this wasn't five years of experience oh i know what it is it's that button you gotta hit you this was oh no this is the protocol and i don't know anything past the protocol well exactly and it's the the point the point of the fact is as a shift person a lot of the things you have to do is report to someone else who can do that because you don't have the clearance to go underground for example but it was was yeah just imagine a guy running in his pajamas just like combing his hair like what went wrong what is it he's looking at you and you're just yeah (laughs) but it's your job to then convey that information to the relevant people you've got to know i mean chances are if it's good they are are, are already informed but then it's you're the backup like if someone says what's going on i was here and and this is what this is what happened exactly But it's also very good bonding because I remember when it's breaking, everyone comes in. It was near Christmas actually. It was must have been like near oh, the end no. of December, and everyone just like, well, the thing is like, it's fine. We're approaching nearly the end of the run, so right. we weren't really doing that much. But people come in. There's some some cake, some some stolen, and we just like having yeah. a chat because there are some parts we just can't do anything. Yeah. So you just wait for someone else. And yeah, it really just it really does like meet meet your part of the team. But the second reason why it's really good to be out there is a lot of the outreach stuff. Because mm-hmm. I've conversed with members of the public, they do certain open days. I've done visits, uh, which basically contextualise CERN to the public and to the wider audience. So okay. there was actually, I think it was March this year, they advertised that I helped last year. Museums, four hundred people from museums around the world came to really CERN just came to CERN to look at their, their museums and um, scientific exhibitions in general, huh. and I helped show them around some of, some of the places. Well, yeah, that's great, actually. Yeah, but just really. You concerned us so much in terms of outreach. I never would have thought that. I mean, I know you can visit it, but I didn't actually think of it as like a, as an outreach thing. Like you think outreach, you think sitting at a science center and playing with like one of those little wires with. Oh, we have that as well. Current. But well, yeah, I guess so. But I never thought of it. I, I just think of it as a professional body. I don't necessarily think of it. Well, as it a, is, and as a, as a worldwide representative of particle physics and especially science, mm-hmm. it. And it's the largest uh, lab in the world. Yeah. It is, it falls on it to contextualize its its relevance. I guess it has to be in particle physics. Ex- exactly. And it also justifies getting local money as well. Yeah. That's true. Actually, I mean, Geneva must be pretty thankful for it, given that everyone comes to Geneva, not just for everything else, but there's the added bonus of this massive scientific experiment that's sitting there as well. House prices in the area are oh, yeah. disgusting. But I think it's just from the fact that most of us live in the small French town and anyone yeah. who can't afford to live in Switzerland lives in small French town. Yeah, but and then they cross CERN the has day. definitely added to 
the growth of the local yeah. local villages. My uh, my supervisor is a great story. Um, one one of his uh, colleagues or collaborators, um, he was showing around members of Stormont, you know, the Northern Irish yeah. Assembly, and uh, he was showing them around. Sorry, he was on some way the scientific advisor, so he was showing around members. The MLAs around uh, certain, they were, you know, showing them the diagrams. Everyone was going, oh, look at this. And then they put the magnets on. And uh, and um, they had this great big grand dinner at the end. And the head of CERN or whatever, the LHC or whatever, was sort of standing there and giving a brief speech and, you know, tapping the glasses and everything. Thank you all for coming. Da, 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 da. And um, then some member of some party, I don't know which one, so I won't point fingers, but got up at the end and said, um, well, this is all very wonderful, but uh, we're diehard Christians and we don't believe any of this. <laughs> Despite being shown this billion euro investment and whatever, um, they just they, they turned their nose up. And, oh, well, um, the earth is 6,000 years old and that'll be the end. <laughs> I mean, that kind of thing just like, it just really just annoys me because like I myself am a Catholic and this is an interesting um, topic as well because you don't get... No, I didn't, I didn't expect this. Oh, <laughs> no. But no, it's it's it it does defy me when I like talk to these like fundamental Christian things and it's like, well, I understand where you're coming from, but you really need to get your head out the ground and like mm. observe the world around you. And the Bible is only supposed to be like, it's a guide, right? It's not... It is supposed to be the literal word of God, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the everything literal, it's exactly minutia you can apply to everything. Yeah. I mean, it's supposed to be a general basis of how to live your life. Yeah. Well, my headmaster always viewed like the, the creation story as a, as a metaphor, not not as literal as a metaphor. And when you look at it like that, you're kind of well, kind of see your point there. But you know, he, he was an English teacher, so maybe he just read sure. into it that way. But um, we, I, I mean, no one didn't respect this guy. So if he said that, kind of, yeah, all right, okay. I think it's bollocks, but sure. I mean, like, yeah, sure. I don't really want to get into. Like, yeah, I don't want because I wasn't Christian prepared. mythology uh, kind no. of like discussion. But, but I mean, but, let's let's go back to the LHC stuff. So, what do you think is more important, manpower or money, to get the job done? To get the job done. LIGO and um, LIGO and LHC stuff. Huge amounts of money, but also huge amounts of people. You know, two, three thousand people working on these experiments. What what's really needed? If you had to pick between one and the other, what do you think is more valuable? Generally speaking, it's 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 hard. It's it's a genuine catch twenty two. It, it is. You it is. You know, it's a devil's like, advocate question. I get that. It's easy to see that particle physics has grown since. 2012 since Higgs found because that has got an injection of money. You've got departments like Edinburgh that has ballooned in size. Their particle yeah. physics, they've got a new because wing. Because they're hosting Higgs. Because he's, he's there. that's where Higgs is, right? And in terms of um, gravitational waves, we're only seeing sort of like... Past two years, three past years. Past two years. Of course, it wasn't the Nobel Prize was given in 2016. Yeah. And so they got a huge amount of funding. And then that, in turn, gets people who are motivated in the field to get more people. In. Yeah. And once you've got a certain number of people... It's, I don't it's want to a say massive too big to fail, yeah. but it is. But then at the same time, you withdraw funding, manpower decreases. Yeah, you don't get the results. You, you don't get the results. You know, so down. which one is more important? I think at the end of the day, I would say manpower, but a specific type of manpower. What do you mean by that? Because there are, there are the trailblazers and there's the grunt work. Yeah. You 
take the trailblazers out and you can put all of the money in the world into an experiment, it's not going to go anywhere mm -hmm. because you've just got people doing grunt work. And it's required, right? It's needed. And it's needed. You need um, the people to solder the things. But the you trailblazers are the one that attracts the money in the first place. And, and are they're the ideas the one, people. They're, they're usually ones that push the field to go further. Yeah. Okay. Well, in, in, in light of that, you know, you, you talked about the trailblazers and, and, and the grunt work people, right? It's kind of like a management thing, right? You know, exactly. Uh, someone mentioned to me a couple of days ago, it was yesterday, about unstructured structure. They, she didn't really explain it to me in, in any great detail, but it sort of got me thinking, you know, unstructured structure, that sounds an awful lot like lots of academia. But the smaller research groups, you know, the the one boss and the, the couple of people that work underneath, but you can't have unstructured structure in a massive collaboration like that. There's too much money at stake. There's too many people's time. So clearly it must be somewhat structured. I mean, do you think there's anything that, that smaller research groups trying to achieve a bigger thing, maybe for lack of money or lack of people, can learn from larger collaborations in terms of maybe, you know, management or the structure? So one of the things CERN does quite well, and it has actually been commented by external sources, done well, is the management scheme. Right. Because, okay, so you've got a director general of CERN, mm -hmm. and then you've got the heads of all the individual LHG experiments, mm -hmm. and then in those you've got um, people who... Like, direct physics you've got physics directors physics coordinators mm -hmm. you've got run coordinators these are people that are have quite a lot of roles and responsibility mm -hmm. and then beneath them you have particular main analyses that will have like conveners so you'll have okay. like a physics um convener underneath them you'll have like a higgs convener and then all the analysis groups that are looking into the higgs they will have their own um yeah sub conveners so there's like seven or eight tiers of, of, of management are, and structure there are there are tiers of management structure and well, it, it, it works because if it, it works in companies and businesses and stuff why shouldn't it work in in, in physics the only reason the only reason why it can't it, it can be seen to be a problem is that at the lower end mm -hmm. you're then filling your um you roles that, with phd students and postdocs mm -hmm. and because they only typically well, a PhD student really becomes useful to your experiment unless you're an amazing trailblazer within like end of second year. So essentially, you've only really got a year or maybe two. And then right. postdocs, most of them are on a year or two rolling grants. So they can't really be in a role. They can't integrate. For that long. Right. So you'll find that the best analyses have people that have been on some sort of same train for mm -hmm. even decades. So would you say that that's inhibiting progress? The short-term contract nature of, of you know, early career researchers is actually mitigating the success of some of these larger projects because they don't integrate well and marry well with the management scheme that, that that's tried and tested and proven. Well, I mean, any management scheme is going to be a bit upset if you've got people coming in every one or two years. Yeah. The way the convenership works um, for an analysis is that it's a two-year role. Right, okay. So this is kind of like a, a, a chair of a particular body so or something like that. So basically this is going to be, um, I have an analysis and the person who is in, responsible for that analysis would be the convener. Right, okay. Example. He delivers then, it or she delivers it, you know. Well, level. they're the one that makes sure that the papers get out on time okay. or that kind of stuff. Uh, it's quite like... It, it's it quite is structured. Like, it is a little bit corporate, yeah. yeah. Very structured. I mean, it's, it's quite useful as well. It stops papers being split up into rubbish it basically mm. it basically ensures the scientific integrity of scientific publications by cert 
Okay, right. is this is this adding something? Is this going to be useful? I guess if your name, if, if if CERN is on it, and someone reads it and thinks, well, that's trash, it you know drags CERN through the dirt a little bit, and then the director general can look at it and say, well, you know, you were in charge of this. Why was this nonsense? And so there are all sorts of approval processes and that kind of mm -hmm. things for like internally, uh, um, internally to the co collaboration um, right. mostly, and then there's something called editorial board, which is kind of like separate to the analysis and um, that's right. re that looks at the paper and the an internal and editorial physics. board that manages yes. that the, the sort of discusses the material also out then, with the original team yes and, and again outside to the main analysis um, there's institutional reading so each group that is each institution that is attached to the experiment will get asked to read some papers that are right. going to circulation so they can say oh if oh i'm not sure about the last question so go mm. could you add this to this uh plot right. or i think you've done it so there's lots of ways so there's of like checking. three or four tiers of peer review well it's some Within, of them are parallel i think they go yeah. in but then there's a lot yeah there's a well lot not necessarily tiers but you know there's different sources for exactly, for, uh, exactly. for uh, feedback that's actually pretty useful uh, and so the, the thing about the convenience then is that it's mm -hmm. two years and this is probably the best thing that you can do in this situation because it's two years and then you you get one new person each year right so you've get every single convener team has an experienced person and a new person right and they will then pass on to the next one right that is one of the things you can do to encourage younger people to so take it's kind of like a mentoring system in, in it's a place. mentoring system yes that's, that's good and that that is good and that does help mitigate some of the shorter term contract stuff so there are management roles that you can incorporate into your structure to mm -hmm. allow for shorter um periods of yeah. um, for time but then again the shorter period of thing is then then a separate issue then because with something like cern there's only one of cern yeah and you can be essentially bandied around to uh, a different research group but mm -hmm. then you go well i'm working at cern okay we'll pay you at cern and then nothing really changes apart from the fact you've got to go back to a different country yeah it does kind of mitigate some of the annoying things about like chaining postdocs where you mm -hmm. have to uplift your entire life and move to a different yeah. country every two to three years until you've get on the academic track. Yeah. Well, look, actually, I want to actually move on to that sort of stuff, you know, talking about sure. like stress and things like that. I think you mentioned you kind of want to discuss this and academia is rife with stress. Okay. You only have to spend, you know, a week or so sitting in any of these offices or research groups to know that people are you know stressed out in the wazoo whether it's because they've got contracts running out whether it's the fact they have to you know move themselves and cart themselves off the other side of the world for another year or papers need out because they need to prove to the next you know job application whatever um what's your take on it like w within your own research group within cern as well maybe like you can see it from both ends yeah i mean so stress is going to be an inevitable part of the phd and yeah. it's all about how you cope with it. And this is where actually I wanted to come oh, up with an allegory. Right. Oh, look at this. Look at this. The laptop is here. And yeah, a great a visual medium for a an audio focused um oh, this is, this is more broadcasting of, this, this service. This is a prompt for me. Because, oh, right. Okay. Um, but this is one of the things I wanted to, to have a look about because the stress and the the lack of drive and a lot of the problems that are associated with people doing PhDs, I think can be, they can be traced into the community. Right. Okay. Because, um, so one of the things I'd like, I, I, I think that, um, people are, is that the PhD can be quite an isolated thing. I, I'd agree. Um, especially, 
especially if you're outside an international collaboration, but you're not exempt. So as someone who worked at CERN, I've seen it firsthand of people who have worked at CERN, they have regular meetings with people and they still kind of like drop off the radar. In like a big office environment, like a um, plan office or... Well, I mean, so CERN is littered with small offices. With right, okay. Groups. So sometimes you could be in an office on your own. Okay. And Ugh. even though you've got if CERN meetings, they can happen twice a week, you can mm -hmm. still spend around, I don't know, 25 to 30 hours without contact with another person. Jeez. It's, and to top it all off, you're several hundred meters underground. There's not even daylight. Well, I mean, that, so most of the CERN offices are above. Oh, okay. So. Well, I got that wrong. Well, it, it, it can depend. If you're doing more of the hands-on stuff, then that can be. If you are at a yeah. test beam, then you will be at least a few meters underground. And then you could be doing 12-hour shifts and that kind of stuff. Right. So it it has swings and roundabouts, and they're going to be good days and bad days. Yeah. But the isolation is a factor, no matter what. But really. The isolation is a big factor. And I think... This isolation can cause people to, and here's where the allegory starts, is to become sort of addicted to the PhD. Okay. Now, this is, it's a kind of a weird one. I'm not saying that it's the same as like a kind of like a drug addiction. No, the, the, this is, this is, uh, this is but, something I kind of agree with because one of my first stand-up sets was about um, how doing a PhD in academia is a bit like a drug addiction. Just somebody else pays for it. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so then... So some of the markers for addiction, this is what I've got my thing up. Just to right, get, to okay. Get it. So this is a twelve-step thing. Well, no, this is just <laughs> this is just a, a simple Google about like ten signs of X addiction, and I okay. cross-checked it with somewhere else just to make sure that they were kind of like things. But I won't go through all of them. But like, no. but just replace like gambling or drugs with PhD. So one of the most common signs of gambling addiction, PhD addiction, let's yeah. call it. Um, is the obsession that comes with it. And I've seen this as well. Oh, yeah, so yeah. a lot of people are very obsessed with the, to, with the PhD where it comes to their detriment. They skip meals. They spend 12 hours in there. They start eating junk. Um, they they come, come to the point where people are intensely focused on a, on a task to the detriment of, of something Every else. Every other part of their life, right? yeah. And then the second step is the the inability to stop it. And this kind of comes with the obsession for it as well. So yeah, compulsive behavior. Exactly. So at the healthy working environment would be, say, working from nine till five. And, and that's at, when it stops. Leaving the door and not thinking the about it. The janitor comes in and says, you're going to get up because I have to do that spot. Yeah. But then this is where the community comes in because not only do we have the isolationist and we have these people maybe slightly becoming a bit more addicted to PhD, yeah. it's not helped by people sending emails at 10 p.m. at night no. or Skype emails or something like that. And yeah. I'm going to be honest, I am also guilty of this. Yeah, because I, I don't think it any becomes, of us are It comes with the territory. And there'll be sometimes where I'll send a message that don't reply to tomorrow, but I'm just going to post yeah. this here. But then you've got to reply anyway. And it's because people are working. And now you point. think, oh, great, now I have to reply to this because he, he knows I've sent this. He knows I'm looking. And... And you well, say, I mean, sometimes you can get away with it because like, just, like, just it, read it. Like, okay, he doesn't know I've not I've read this, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to come guess, at that later. Yeah. And there's some t it's Outlook is one of these glorious features, which is like send later, so you can so you can oh, send it brilliant. at one in the morning and be like, mm, I can't. Let's wait until now. seven a.m. Oh, plus seven hours to send it later. Yeah. Um, but people so, are getting addicted to it. like get, getting the results that people are, are literally thriving off their own success in a field which doesn't necessarily reward success. No, and it's not just PhD students. So, so you could think, oh, it's maybe burnt out PhDs into this. No, it's academic as well. I've got a few professors and doctors that get high ups sending mm -hmm. me emails at 
Gone at 9 p.m. And you know they're in Glasgow. You know they're not in America at a conference and this is just convenient for them. Yes. They're they're local. In international collaborations, you make allowances for people who... You get an email at 4 in the morning, you're like, what? Oh, it's 9 p.m. It's him, yeah. It's It's fine, right? And then you just deal with it. But even then, you just said, it's 9 p.m. That's okay. Like, we've (laughs) rationalized that immediately going from 9 to 5 is fine. This This is what I think. This is... This is something I think that academics do a very good job of. And this is not necessarily related to, to the addiction side of things. We'll come back to that. But I think they're very good at holding themselves to a separate set of standards. You know, people are quite happy to continually work from home. I think you wouldn't get that in a, in a regular job. And I think this acts, like you said, to the detriment of a communal feeling. If everyone's working on their own little goal and their own little project, right, and Everyone decides to work from home. The office is empty, right? So the one guy who comes in, maybe because he's kind of hoping he can get a bit of help offhand, there's nobody there to, to, to help them. On top of that, if everyone's all working in the same building, in the same office space, and it all it feels like you're working towards a communal goal. You know, one person's yeah, success yeah. feels like shared success. But that's only if everyone in the same um, office is A, working on similar stuff, because yeah. that can happen. Because mm-hmm. um, I was in an office of other people, but I was the only person working on it. Yeah. And B, people working from home, sure. But I'm not talking about people working on home. They'll come into the 9 to yeah, 5 to yeah. see who's doing work. And yeah. then when they finish, they'll go and do some extra work at home. Yeah. Maybe they'll go to the gym, they'll have some dinner, but they're going to be working. But eight until 11 is, is, is spent on GitHub. Yeah. But then that, that, that creates that kind of isolation because then you feel like you have to compete with these yes. people that are just like working solidly they're just producing results mm-hmm. like they rust and you know they're not getting enough sleep and then yeah. it forces you to try and like not necessarily catch up but then you inherit these bad habits from people who are yes who are there's an inherent well. competition like he's got a different set of skills this is what this is one thing i think is important we'll, we'll come back to a couple of other markers but um you, you know you end up comparing yourself to other people you're working on separate projects you've got separate skill sets you have to do your thing they will do theirs leave them to it you know i i did i did jiu-jitsu for years whenever i was younger and one thing that at the end of a black belt grading that we would always tell them is you've got your black belt it's not his it's not hers it's yours so you worked to the best of your ability for this and a phd is the same your phd is unique to you it's not anybody else's as long as your research your work is of a suitable standard doesn't matter whether it can hold a candle to the guy down the corridor or whether it's leagues above somebody else's on an objective or you know professionally accredited level it's your work if you're going to industry that makes a lot of sense yeah. it's, it's completely true however small caveat if you're going into academia of course now yes. this is the thing so i'm working on an analysis and so an analysis is basically we're going to take a set of data for a particular set of years mm-hmm. and we're going to perform a specific check on it yeah it's, it takes a lot of effort a lot of manpower because there's a lot of data there you've got to get rid of a lot of stuff that you don't want mm-hmm. and so this can take many years so if you're like me and you're working on a collaboration you might decide to work on this after you yeah. go from phd student to postdoc mm-hmm. but then if you want to do a postdoc and work in the same field you might be applying to some particular universities and yes. then it's almost like you're competing with someone who's working in the analysis mm-hmm and therefore, it, it, you can become like, oh, greedy, or well, he's done this, I've not done this. Well, oh, am I less, am I mm. worse than them? And so you can get some level of that, and which 
is a feature in na- international collaborations as well. Yeah. Because Cause you'll see the guy working down the corner and you know he's like scooped one thing that you really wanted to work on. He's been working on it in secret. And this internal competition then begins to thrive. But then this is with one of the things where Sony is quite good at. So some, I'm not going to say this is true for all cases, yeah. but uh, the this working on things in secret um, is detrimental. Yeah. But again, it's just, it's a waste of manpower or person power because yeah you're right you're not working on something that you should be working there's on a actually. prescribed goal and you're taking time away from it yes, to do yes. something else yeah. so then it's good about assigning people's particular tasks and this is why people complain about lots of meetings and one of the advantages of lots of meetings is mm. that you can regularly show that you are working on a specific task and because mm. everybody knows you're working on a specific task no one is going to go and do it yeah. under your rug. You've got that kind of like intellectual property safeguarded. Yeah. There's no need for academic espionage mm-hmm. because I know what you're working on and here's the results to prove it in the past week. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it seemed for everybody else. So what kind of other markers have you got there? So then, yeah, so in terms of the addiction, so we've talked about the unhealthy um, culture that can be defined by yeah. this. We can talk about people that can't actually leave the office I've chatted to just tell a bit about like of the obsession with the PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the there's the kind of like um, uh, what do I say the gambling fallacy, gambler's fallacy about um, oh I've already put this much amount into it, I must do I must oh, if I I'm going to yeah. I'm going to see I'm going to go into it more. And mm-hmm. so it's not necessarily the perfect one, but um, it's doing the PhD to improve happiness you come under this false sense that because you've done it so far, if you just finish this thing before you leave, or if you just finish this thing, you'll be happy. And it doesn't matter if you've not eaten, if you spent like 13 hours working on the Mm -hmm. same thing, you'll be happy because you've achieved that kind of small task. And again, that works in isolation because then you're working at night, you're working outside and that kind of thing. There's no one looking over your shoulder to say, you've been been here all day. You want to want to get some food? No, no, no. I got this. I got this thing. There, there, there can be there. There is a very small amount of that. But then you then you then you start denying is a problem, and then that's another marker of, of addiction yeah. because then you start okay, then you start saying things like, well, it, okay, it's not a problem because he's doing it, or you justify it yeah. by your role within the community and not necessarily the role within the outer scheme of like fundamental happiness. Yeah. And this is one of the things I've actually noticed with. Um, so you were talking about like work ethic, or I think with, with Bryn, yeah. of people from the United States. Yeah. And they typically work worse. They, they work longer hours. 10-hour days or something. It's like 8 well, to 6, they'll frequently Think work. of the high-impact environment that's, that you have at CERN, and you've got yeah. the mentality of people from the United States as well. And they well, end yeah, up doing ridiculous pot. hours. Yeah. I mean, you get, you get the with a lot of other people and you get very a lot of very hardworking people and the mm-hmm. work they do is good mm-hmm. but then you're just thinking about are you happy yeah. do you have everything you need are you taking breaks and you you don't know these things mm-hmm. and they I get know, i mean americans get two weeks of, of unpaid holiday they're encouraged to not take holiday because they financially lose from it and we get six weeks of paid holiday a year Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a Actually, massive it's difference. Is it eight? It's eight. We we're we're entitled to eight weeks, but goodness knows the last time any single PhD student ever has taken that much without being sick leave or that kind of thing. But the thing about that is that you've got this mentality of people just going, well, okay, I, I need to do this. I've got that. And then it gets them into like 
financial difficulty. But the one yeah. thing about CERN, which is nice, is that it's got a lot of holidays. And right. people from the United States, which come here, kind of maybe semi-develop the european style of you don't yeah. have to work as much mm-hmm. it can it can work both ways yeah. in a healthy environment it can you can do that way and then the last kind of like marker because well, it's loads of them but that's what it's like mood swings as well you get people who I think, did you pop out or something oh, did i no the other end no is it? are we okay yeah i think did so i maybe just yanked it that's maybe it yeah but then so this so the last thing i want to talk about is like a, another sign is a uh, mood swings as well and i've seen that mm. and the mood swings are kind of like semi-triggered by the PhD, but they can have all sorts of other effect- factors like not sleeping properly because of all the things we've discussed before or not eating properly because of all the things we've discussed before. Mm-hmm. And then you can get things like the second year blues, which is basically just depression. Oh God, that's, yeah, and I've heard that. You, people can just like not get out of that. And then yeah. therefore they can come with mood swings and they become a bit like irrational. And then because every single physicist is like, drinking coffee like i don't know how i don't drink coffee i just drink green tea well that's that's good for you but you go to the you yeah. go to cern and they've got huge coffee machines mm-hmm. there's coffee machines on literally every corner i can go to my office from the cantina past three vending machines of proper good at coffee because the yeah. italians they will not they will not settle for swell. mediocre like, coffee they've got like nescafe like um oh yeah the little proper pouches. little pouches yeah, there and yeah, they post yeah. in like it's there's, there's a there's a good um as a good level of like Java throwing through their system, and yeah. then you've got all all of that kind of thing as well. But this is the this is the problem. So okay, so I've identified some aspects of why it's similar to, to addiction, and the yeah. reason why I've highlighted that is because the solution lies in that very allegory as well. Because so there was a TED talk around on Facebook, I think Johan Mari was right. doing the rounds, and he was talking specifically about how addiction is wrong and mm-hmm. it was talking about a series of experiments that were conducted to think what, oh uh, wait a minute the approach to addiction so this yes. is like what, what, what portugal did yes yes but in in in, in that sense in exactly i'll let you finish instead of interrupting because <laughs> because he he did bring up portugal and that's why yeah. like a lot of people have known portugal i think i've from. seen this yeah but um the his takeaway message was that the the opposite of addiction is like unity it's a community yes and this is one of the things that i feel that certain groups certain aspects of phd is lacking yeah massively it's lacking the people like this is nothing just i'm not attacking you but when is the last Mm. time you have asked anyone in their office how they're feeling Mm, i one or two people i tend to ask not necessarily fairly frequently but honestly i'd say probably the past couple of months Sure. a couple okay. of months that's that's better than but most. i think it's better than most i always I, I i do try to tend to ask people you know are you doing okay because that's all it takes this is one thing that this is one thing that i've let you finish your point first but yeah maybe a couple of months okay so then there's that aspect when's the last time you've actually considered these people as friends and actually hung out with them outside of work oh, rarely and i think seldom that i think that can be the key that's because, a sore spot at the moment actually so i think this is the p- problem so if I look at all the departments in the university and like the kind of people, very few people hang out with each other. However, mm-hmm. the particle physics detector group, tight knit community. Really? They are happy. Why? Is it because they you... meet up with people? They come in. So I'm, because I'm now in that office as well. Yeah. So we have a coffee club. 
Right. Okay. Well, we kind of have that as well, but no, it's, it's it's a kind of thing. But it's like small. It's still, but it's still work. It's still work chat. It's still work chat. But this is the thing. Like the coffee club has now expanded. It's now a WhatsApp group. We use it to convert about our what we're doing at the weekend. We go mm-hmm. on. We go um, together to do we, around someone's house to watch football. Like they come to mind to play board games. And yeah. It's just like a, a community of people who are working in a similar situation who understand yeah. each other, but they have something outside of work, and it's important here because takes you it drags you away from the keyboard just that's mm. keeping up yeah. that social it gives circle. you something else to look forward to not the exactly. result it gives you social things so, so if, I, if i'm if i'm saying if i'm going to meet a friend this is this is kind of a me thing yeah. i don't like to flake if i'm saying i'm doing something i'm doing yeah. that thing and it does really take me away and it sets a hard deadline on when mm-hmm. i'm supposed to do things so that community in that sense because okay some people do meet on a friday uh, after work for some drinks and yeah. then that's the last time you see them and they come in and they're working Yeah, to foster that kind of like PhD community is useful and a lot of people ignore what the graduate school does because it's useful um, I mentioned very near the start the Burns unit that's how yeah, I met yeah, yeah. I also met um, some chemistry PhD students a couple of engineer students mm-hmm. um, some mathematicians that's why I met Jamie yeah um, and it's great because we still hang out with each other because Jamie yeah. now lives down the corner from me I live yeah. from coming from another and we PhD students we understand and yeah. we understand the life we understand they're busy sometimes but sometimes we can just chill and hang out yeah. and it's that community of whether it's just inside mm-hmm. your uh, department which I think is also important mm-hmm. but also external with other PhD students I, that, I think that's crucial meeting people inside and outside of work just to give that community it solves the, it solves most of the addiction problems Yeah, because that was the the highlight if you give a, a rat water uh, yes, and yeah. the water with cocaine if there's no other stimulus they're just going to go for the drug and they're just going to kill themselves yeah. but if you give them a healthy environment mm-hmm. they will they won't overdose on on the on the the crack water mm-hmm. because they might sample some but then they've got that immunity yeah community to to hang out in and it it make things better because there's a supporting aspect to that as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that is probably one of the major criticisms to have the PhD is that there's only so much you can force social cohesion, but you can be surprised what you can do. Yeah. This is this is another interesting point because there's, no, there's very few social engagements that are officially sponsored by the school. The most recent one was the barbecue. Yeah. Which I couldn't attend because I had another event on. But, you know, if there was... I feel like, okay, let's compare it to like a business or, or, or a corporate thing. You know, they've got work nights out, right? Sure. You know, they'll they'll go for happy hour at X or there'll be some kind of community event or or a office event somewhere. I'm not necessarily talking about a, you know, uh, bring the family to the sports day thing. That's not necessarily something we would do, but there are sort of business and school-sponsored events that just don't happen here. And I think maybe if that was encouraged a bit more, it might drag people away from the office. Or if there was a more heavily enforced sort of nine-to-five attitude, I don't think it's going to happen. I, 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 you, no, you're asking for to move mountains in that case. Sure, but then it doesn't, again, it doesn't need to be that high up because mm. the, the graduate school has a lot of things that we just don't go out. I mean, did you know there's a gardening club? A what? There's a gardening club organized by the... Uh, Which is? The, uh, by, on the Thursday lunchtime. People oh, the gardening, the gardening club. Oh, yeah, 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 yes. Oh, sorry. I'm, uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. just the, these things like that, which is organized by that, just to meet other PhDs. I students. think the trouble is that the, sometimes the grad school doesn't necessarily advertise itself well. I mean, yes, it, it, it doesn't advertise itself well, but it does what but any other point, thing does it. it sends yeah. you emails that you ignore. 
Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I, I actually bookmarked that, but I, I couldn't attend that because it was like, that was when the time when I had a meeting. Yeah. But I, I it's something that I think you could you could do. But then I think at the end of the day, all I can ask other PhD students to do is to basically just work around the office. Like look around the office, see what they're doing and try to just do couple more things that to have that cohesion yeah so one of the things that was good about cern is that so i said i was on the long-term attachment mm -hmm. and so you've got all of these people from the united kingdom mm -hmm. who are all attached to different universities and they're all at cern and so we formed this group of phd students called the lta yeah and so you've got phd students who are going to be there for like anywhere between four months and two years based at CERN and there's a community of them together and they do things like hike, we meet for lunch. Like it's small things like that. To but I think trying it's to build a because a lot of people are in a different environment. You know, maybe there's American students that have come over. They have no idea how things work in, in, in Europe in general. But we've maybe been to mainland Europe a bit more frequently. Sure. It's got a rough idea how it works. You know, it's important to make people feel welcome in those kind of instances. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons why I found my time at CERN most enjoyable was not necessarily the fact of the, the work that was done. Mm -hmm. It was the people that I met and the, the amount of time that I spent with those people outside yeah. of work. And okay, sure, I, I, I met more than just the LTA. There's the base at CERN. I met them mostly at work, but mm -hmm. then I met a few more while climbing and they happened to work at CERN and we yeah. did that. And then we, we went on holiday together. Like it's that kind of like community of we people. Would never do that here. Not a chance. I, I've seen, like, my flatmate, he's in IGR, and right. he has, like, a group of, like, um, IGR friends, and they mm -hmm. went, I think they did, they did a couple of, like, went on holiday together. Like, it's it's finding the right balance, but then it's also striking it early as well, because mm. you can get to the point where a couple of the people uh, kind of more outgoing leave, and everyone just, like, goes to themselves. And I think it's, yeah, it's, oh, important, it's important to every single PhD student that some semblance of community is formed, because it really does help yeah. you ways that you can't see. I think a lot, a lot of our sociable ones have left. So we're kind of left with people who are very much work focused and there's there's no, you're peeling them off the desk. You know, you and I've realized now that I do not fit in with the the good physicist. There's no such thing as a good physicist. Well, what, what I mean is the, the stereotypical good physicist, you know, the, 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 like, like just what you said, you know, sitting and working and working on getting the good results, like getting the papers out. That's not me. I don't fit in with that crowd. It's not who I am, okay? I don't like coding. I don't particularly enjoy physics anymore. I'm ready to get out, move into industry, and do something else. There are different values in my work than just getting a good result. So I'm kind of struggling to find that in, in Astro. You know, is the, is the only other people who really take that same kind of approach are the people who are just about to leave as well, people who have kind of had enough. And I don't know, I don't know if the other guys will, will change their, their tune whenever they're reaching third year and looking out and realizing there's no goddamn jobs in this. Or, or what? Mm, again, like, uh, look, it, it's, a, it's a hard wire to, 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 to cross, I think. It, it, it kind of is. Like, once you're... S once you're set in a particular way, it can be hard to change that. But you'd be surprised what like a good community can do. And again, this is one of the things about the PhD, which is a blessing and a curse. It's the lack of structure. My God, and yeah. it's the and it's not just the lack of cons uh, structure. It's the lack of consequences when things go wrong. Because if I hmm. I can I can get in. I try to get in between which is around ten every day, and I'll okay. leave at maybe six or maybe seven. Like that, that's that's which my to be honest is reasonable hours. In if total. I, but 
if I just wake up late and coming at two, if I don't have any meetings, like no one's going to check up. No one cares. Yeah. And it's up to the individual to try and formulate that structure. But it's self-policing. It's, it's self-policing. And that just reinforces the previous you know, addiction problems. Oh, God, I haven't worked enough. Uh, he's been here all day. I need to, to stay late. That's the community as well. The yeah. community can help. Like, it's nice to actually feel that you're missed if you come in late. Because if, for example, in mm. the office that I'm in now, someone comes in, and oh, what time do you call this? Like, yeah. Small things. Like, it's yeah. a... It's a, it's a colloquial thing that makes you feel like you're part of a community and you're, you're part yeah you're you part actually belong you actually belong right i come in they ask me how my weekend is and we have a chat and then mm. we have ready for coffee we're sitting there we're chicken there mm. someone will bring something from like um from abroad like i brought some back some back on italy we're just chatting yeah. about rubbish about you know football about my word of the oh week or something god we don't get that we don't get that up in the house it's all is, work but this is this is something that is well, my other problem is i'm not in that office i'm in a separate office hmm. and there's there's days and weeks where i'm the only person in that office and there's three people and the other guys work from home or have got conferences and stuff like that and you know i'm the i'm the guy in the office it's just me so i i, I took off you we're on something there. I mean, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's just kind of like proves my point in the sense that, okay, it can be just office-based. It can be external. Because like, yeah. once you've got a good thing going, you just kind of like attract other people as well. Because yeah. like people from the neighboring offices... Uh, people don't want to be left out. Yeah, no, so yeah, the people from the neighboring offices that kind of want to feel like they want to add something yeah. can come in and we can chat and we can discuss and we could talk rubbish for like 20 minutes. Yeah. Like... For, for like an hour and then go back and do some work. And it's just like, it's fostering that community mm. because it helps so many of the failings that people have about yeah. inadequacy and then when it comes to the time where you actually really need to reach out and talk to someone maybe 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 it's there because there's a there's a lack of confidence as well so one of the bad things about like uh, international collaboration um can be which is i think is just like moving abroad in general is that mm. if you spend enough time in a particular place you build up a network yeah of people that you can talk to Mm-hmm. And this is external to like physics, right? This mm-hmm. is just going to be people. And if you're away from that, you you don't have that safety net. You've got to build that. And having a community really helps that mm-hmm. because I've seen people fall through that net. I've literally seen it with my own eyes about people who they've left, they've gone to CERN, they don't quite fit in, they try or they just, something happens and they don't feel like they can yeah. talk to anyone and they retreat. Um, an office mate of mine we went, we went on holiday together. It was a nice skiing trip. Yeah. Came back, didn't see him for a month. And I was kind of getting worried. Yeah. But I then tried to go and see him. And then it turns out he was really bad, the depression. And then he just got moved back to the UK. And I've not seen him since. Jeez. And it, it can, it can, people can do that. Someone can have some medical problems and they can start mm-hmm. doing that. And it's all about catching up with them. And this is one of the things that I'm doing as well. If I know someone is at risk. Yeah. I'm I'm talking to them regularly, mm-hmm. or even it's not even regularly, it's semi-regularly. I'm yeah. checking how they are. If I'm not seeing them in some time, I'll it's go just have saying them. hi in the corridor. Sending them a message on Facebook. Yeah, giving them a call if you've got their number. Yeah, right? and I think that could be better as well because like saying hi in the voice. corridor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saying hi in the corridor is like a, an instinct, so we've got reaction. Actually, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, hi, how are you? I'm fine. Yeah. All right. You, you don't get anything. It's a defensive measure. Yeah. You have the veneer. You just need to like be across from someone and just like. And talk and whittle away. Mm-hmm. I have some good conversations with some people about how are you? Mm. How how are you within yourself? Yeah. Is the work too much? And so you can really get that. And mm. I've, I've seen that with a couple of people. And it's, it's again, community. Yeah. And it's, it's, if you have the community, you can find people that you can talk to in that community. Yeah. 
my neighbors told me I should take a holiday. Over the weekend, my, my neighbor said, yeah, you want to go on holiday? I'm like, yeah, I like to wait until I've actually accomplished something in work. And he's like, when was the last time you did that? I'm like, I don't know. And he said, well, maybe you should maybe you should take some time off. So, yeah, I'm actually looking into it. But that's that's, that's another uh, thing I want to touch on. I realize I've forgotten something. But, um, you know, the, 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 the practice and approach to mental health, safety, and whatever else, uh, and looking after people, um, that sort of... Uh, I don't want to say uh, it's, it's very corporate. It's put a poster up. It's, oh, you can talk to people, but it's it, it, it. They're putting the onus on the person who's suffering to take the first step, and the reason they're suffering is because they can't take that first step. It's on people who are, you know, feeling well, feeling good to go and speak to people. Like you said, you know, how are you? Are you doing okay? Is the work all right? Things good at home? What whatever? You know, it, it, it's it's little things like that. That's all it takes, I think, to really make someone feel okay or at least feel like it can be okay but i think so i think you touched on a good point there but i would say it it is at the end of the day it is is up to the person suffering from depression to take the first step yeah all you can do is make sure the stairs are there well i think so yeah i mean you can't coax it out of someone but i think sometimes there needs to be a little bit more responsibility for people who are doing okay but you're going to get the stage where there are people that you can't do anything. You, you can't. Yeah, yeah. people. They, people they, have they to want. People want to have to help themselves, exactly. or have to want to help themselves. But I think there's a difference between being there and holding your hand out. Sure. And you know, giving people a clear opportunity to help themselves, I think is. Uh, but is it's what needs not to be just done. there if something goes wrong. It's being able to take preventative steps yes. so that people don't get in those things in the first because that is that is key. If it's been going on for six weeks, it's six weeks near enough wasted. It's six weeks lost of, of productive work and just abject misery. You know, you could have done something eight weeks ago that could have made things a little bit easier, you know? Yeah, I mean, making sure there's a someone, something, yeah. some place you can go to is is there whether it's for reflection mm. whether it's someone you can just talk to and just have a massive bitching session that yes. someone could just sit there and just say oh this 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 and they're just sitting there going mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that's yeah, all I right agree. Yeah, yeah sure i mean just get it off your chest i mean mm-hmm. just building it up is just going to want to make it explode i spoke to one of the the super staff they actually asked me about this because they want to set up their own little thing mm. and um she could speak to me and i was talking a little bit about the sort of mental health aspect of things and whatever else and um, she said that her, her I think she was at uh, Boulder, somewhere in Colorado anyway. Yeah, okay. Um, and they said they had that, like, like a, not quite a, like a round table sort of thing. But, you know, someone would get together and the students would come together and you could show up as frequently or as infrequently as you want. You can just sit there and talk about your gripes with other people who similarly want to talk about your gripes to know that you're not alone mm-hmm. in that respect. Well, I, we don't have that here. How, how hard would it be to like book this room out once a week for an hour and have PhD students along who, you know, wanted to come along and just sort of say, I don't like this or this is a bit crap at the moment. Maybe get a bit of advice off people that are doing okay. I think then those kind of things could be done to the institution as opposed yes. to the school. Because if you go to the because it looks the like student unions and that yeah. kind of thing they can have those kind of options mm. the difficulty becomes that if you didn't do an undergraduate 
at said institution, mm-hmm. you are more disenfranchised with that student union yeah. than the average student. Yeah, because the post grads, well the post grads don't tend to go to the, the unions, you know, because they've got a little bit of money. They don't need to go there. They maybe don't want to socialize or associate themselves with undergrads for whatever reasons. I won't say any, but you know, mm-hmm. you can. I don't necessarily mind the undergraduates, but though the the uh, QMU has some beautiful snooker tables. Uh, yeah, that's right. Actually, it's, it's pretty good so, for that. and cheap booze. Cheap booze. I mean, I go for the snooker tables mostly. Okay, well, <laughs> that, there's there's a marker if I've ever seen it. Um, so I mean, yeah, you can get cheap booze from and cheap booze somewhere, somewhere else. So look, let's wrap it up because I know you're uh, you're probably you need food or something, right? Oh, I'm I'm fine, but yeah. do you uh, is, are, are you are you giving anything away there? You just no, denying I, it. I can, I can go. You're no, I mean, back no. up the office. At, at some point, at some point, I, I will go and have some dinner. But I quite eat, I eat quite late anyway. So I'm a, I think that's an English thing. What eating late? Yeah, my oh, sister. I, my I, sister I, eats really late, and she's been in Liverpool for like five years oh, now. I, I don't know. Like most of the she'd eat at like eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. The, the UK will eat at like half five or six. Oh yeah, yeah. It's too early. No, I, I, I way I, too early. I, no, my dad works nights. You see, so. For me, dinner has to be like six o'clock. Otherwise, he's late for work. That's the sort of standard for me. There is one more thing. I oh, okay, go, go d- ahead. It depends. Like, it depends what how long we've got. I mean, we've been doing this for an hour and twenty. Oh, excellent. So there's one. I, I I've got. Yeah, I can go on for some time. Yeah, go on. But so there's another thing. Then I want to talk about which was um, things you can do inside the PhD, which is like everything. And so it's kind of two things. The first thing was. Um, Things you do under the moniker of the PhD that are not to do with the PhD. A la podcast. Teaching undergraduates. Okay. Um, going to careers events. Like mm. things that you'll do under the guise of your PhD that you wouldn't have done if you didn't have the PhD, but has you're not going to put that in your thesis. Yeah. And so doing those kind of things is advertised or should be advertised more as expanding. So you've got the graduate school stuff that Those happens. courses in the schools. Do you know what? I should have taken them, them more good. seriously. Some of them are not so good. I agree. And people just think that the not so good ones are an essential waste of their time and then they just brand the entire thing. Yeah. Because you've, you've said um, at length in a couple of the podcasts about you doing like a project management course. I Those stand kind by of that. ones are very good. But I think they're poorly advertised. If you dress it up in corporate language, people are like, ah, it seems a bit, yeah, I think that's going to be a waste of time. But if you actually take it at face value, go to it and accept what it tells you and think, okay, I can now take a, a I can look at my PhD in the management through a different lens, mm-hmm. you know. But then again, these kind of things widen your PhD to make it something yes. more useful. And I, I do, I fundamentally believe, I mean, in a lot of the universities, teaching is right essentially it is compulsory mm. it's advertised as not but it is because they need yeah. that power and uh, it's good uh, in because it really does if again teaching is one of those things where you can get out what you put in and i love the teaching i actually really enjoy it because you're actually making a difference there and then if exactly. a student goes oh i get it isn't it feels good to know that you've helped that person understand something they didn't understand 10 minutes exactly ago. exactly and so the teaching that i've done is mainly the lab work I yeah think that was you, it p1 or p2 p2 okay um p1 is strange because for me growing up under the english system p1 mm-hmm. is essentially the last a level and yeah. then p2 is actually the first year where you do yeah. some interesting stuff and so it's interesting because I've been doing that for a few years now, mm-hmm. and I can see the trend of the students. I've seen certain things. Do you know what the standard like. is? The standard 
is quite low. But of course, that's to be expected. These yeah. people are in the infancy of the academic career and it's up to you to be one of the people that helps them to do these things. I always try and like impart some kind of knowledge or lesson. Oh God, I sound like a prick when I say that. But that can actually be used in other instances. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll always like say, oh, dimensional analysis. You know, use that. It'll save your skin more often than not. And little things like that. Think about the problem solving here. What are you trying to get from this? Why are you doing the experiment? Okay, well, don't forget that. You know, things like that instead of, ah, carry the one. You know, the carry the one can be used then. It's not something that I can help them. So you did your undergrad here, right? Yeah. Did you ever do the Millican all drawing experiment? Oh, uh, no, I didn't. But I heard nightmare stories. So this is... That is actually the one, so I'm in that P2 lab and yeah. I actually, so I do radioactivity and I do millicon ore drop experiment. Right. I've seen, it's generations, but yeah. year after year of students struggling. But um, I had to talk with someone, do you know what I did? What? I did it. Right. I sat in the lab for mm. six hours, took some data. Mm-hmm. I gave some tests, I created some test data right. that was designed to, give, to, to be given to students if mm-hmm. they were struggling. And I right. did it myself. And I also wrote some code in Jupyter Notebook, so yeah. because that's what the they all use Python. Using. Now, yeah, that is a one-dimensional clustering algorithm. I wrote that myself. A one-dimensional clustering algorithm. Oh, okay. I mean, okay. So I don't want to get into two technical points, yeah. but then this is one of the things that they get is you get some points, and then you've got to turn those points into some sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I did it myself, and I did the entire experiment from beginning to yeah. end, going as detailed as I wanted to, mm-hmm. and that gave me. A knowledge of the experiment and now mm-hmm. every time i i i do that okay okay right. you're wasting That's too much not time what here you do. yeah. you're wasting too much time there okay i understand what are you trying to do that oh yeah. you want to do this how are you going to get that from that just asking these questions yeah. asking a question makes them think so much more yeah if you just tell them what to do go aha and they'll try and do it and you know they won't really understand but yeah i've it. got that resource i've given it to mm-hmm. other people and they can use that and they can yeah. read it and then they can go on because they can that at that point it's, it's I mean like, that was a bit above and beyond I didn't have to do no that. you didn't but it was but one of the, the lasting contribution to the labs now ex- well yes it, it has there's and test data there that can be used until time eternal because you know let, let's be honest the, the lab's not going to change mm-hmm. they, they've paid for the equipment still works god damn it if we're going to spend more money but in addition so on top of all of this in addition to um, giving you additional skills mm-hmm. that you can gain from the PhD, it gives you time off your PhD. Oh, and it a does. Lot I of love it. the break from it. And again, with the addiction markers, yeah. it's about the community, but it also is variety, which then leads me to the second part, mm. which is hobbies. So giving time off the PhD and scheduling that is is beneficial because mm-hmm. it shows that your mind is more active. And a lot of people do exercise because yeah. it, it makes you... It makes you it releases like uh, endorphins and adrenaline and other things that make you sharper. Yeah. And it can give you your work some clarity some cl- and some cleanliness. But also it yeah. can mean you can come back and give it It produces cortisol time. as well. Exactly. Although I think I think cardio does actually increase cortisol. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's another But thing. then time off the PhD for intellectual stimulus mm-hmm. or teaching like um, like teaching is good. But you need to switch off and do something entirely different. Mm-hmm. And having a hobby i think is almost essential i i just realized something uh, as you said that you know i i recently i've started to play guitar more and sure. i've been reading like stink i've been reading i'm reading like 80 pages of stephen king a, a day and that's a lot more reading than i've done what book 
uh, it. Ah. I, I saw the film years ago, a couple of years ago, and I thought, sure. oh, I got to get into this before the next one comes out. So I've, I've, I've read the, the Haunting of Hill House. I've read um, I've read uh, some Scottish uh, a crime thriller thing I got for Christmas. I've read it. I read a book on Irish history. I want to read Moby Dick next. I want to get into Dostoevsky. And I'm like, I never would have done this before. And between that and playing guitar, I've done more work in the past week than I've done in months. Exactly. And I'm like. Why didn't I like, think of this sooner? You know, okay, sure, part of it's experience. It's adapting something I've done before, but I'm seeing things that would have taken me weeks before. I've done more today than I would have done in weeks before, and I, I cannot stress enough how important I think hobbies have actually been recently. But it comes down to, again, it comes down to the, well, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but yeah. community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because not only does it allow you to take some time off the PhD, you can mm-hmm. actually bond with workmates. And as I said, while well, my time at CERN, some of my closest friends were some of the ones I did external activities like climb with or in bouldering together. Mm-hmm. And we do that on a Tuesday. It gets you out of the office, it bonds with the co-workers, it's fresh and it's exercise. It's, yeah. it's good for you in all round. Um, here, um, I can invite people over to mine for board games mm-hmm. and we can play and it's, it's a break from work. Mm-hmm. They're doing something fun, and if you like your tactics like me... It's a little bit different, it's, yeah. It's different. Um, you could do volleyball or badminton or chess, and um, some would do badminton. But yeah, the, like the gym here is actually pretty well kitted out for things. The gym is very well kitted out here. I'd like to play badminton. I've not played in some time, but like something that's, that's good. But yeah. it's something that you can ask people around the office. Do you want to go and do? Do you want to go and do? And some of the other people in the particle physics have squash on a Monday. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the um, the postdocs go together. And that's important as well because that's another thing. Yeah, that's something we haven't actually discussed. The postdocs go together and play squash with some of the uh, the people. And that's that's good as well. So hobby is essential for Mm -hmm. personal well-being and can be good for community, which is what PhD needs. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the most I actually socialize people is at archery on Sundays and when I'm doing this. You know, on, on any given day, there's maybe four or five people I speak to. And like, you know, two of them are the two old women who sit outside the gym every morning waiting for it to open. I've been speaking to them for years about everything from the weather to what holidays are going on. And it sounds silly, but, you know, they sit there and they laugh and like they chitter away at each other. And you think, I, I, I can't help but not get involved in this because I'm the only other person here. So, you know, I find myself being dragged into conversation with them and I enjoy it, you know, between that and then speaking to the occasional person. Um, in the office for my supervisor, you know, and, and that's as far as it goes. So yeah, definitely a, a community is needed. I mean, it's partly one of the reasons why I go around doing my uh, flying visits of the offices. Which is just walking around? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I'll, if I'm in a meeting for like more than an hour and a half, which mm-hmm. can happen, Yeah, I'm not going to, I can't, I don't have the brain space to go straight back into no. work. So I'll chat to people, I'll wander around, I'll go to other offices and just I'll go, I'll go to the, the, the farthest possible toilets just just to have a longer walk and sort of clear my head and think about things instead of using ones that are, are closest but yeah well, I'll spend like 20 minutes to half an hour just going to offices chatting to people seeing yeah. how they are uh, making plans but you know what if it makes you more productive who gives a shit yeah if it actually makes work easier and better then no one can really say boohoo to anything Exactly. There's, that's part of the freedom. I'm not confined yeah. and chained to my desk. Like you could be in certain jobs. Again, that's one of the yeah. advantages of a PhD. It's self-regulated structure or yeah. lack thereof, depending on how you are. But Unfortunately, most of the people doing the regulating aren't necessarily equipped to, to deal with it. No, but again, 
if you have a community, community of people, it will rub off. Yeah. Like if everybody gets in at 10, you may start to mm. realize that you're getting at 10. Because if yeah. everyone has coffee at 11 and you want to kind of get some work done for them, yeah. you'll come in. You'll come in at 10. T- 10, yeah. have some coffee at 11. And it's like, mm-hmm. it really does help. I tend to keep core hours, you know, either between 9 to 5, 8 to 4, something like that. I mean, I go to the gym early, it opens at 6.30, so I can get, you know, get in and out pretty quickly and get into the office by 8.15. And I think, okay, well, otherwise I would have sat in my phone eating breakfast. Like, frig it, I'll just come in and have breakfast here. You know, it's a better use of my time. It does mean I can leave slightly earlier as well. Yeah, you know, but that's just that's just my take on it. Anything else you want to mention? Oh, I think we covered everything. Yeah, we did cover pretty much everything. Any more questions? I don't think so. No, you you actually remembered it better than I did. Um, I had this here whenever uh, things weren't going on on track, but uh, but you kept it actually. You knew this better than I did. You're the most prepared guest I think I've had actually on this. But yeah, I mean, on that topic, I I. I wanted, I did actually get round to during the heptic weekend, um, actually listening to all, all of, of the, these, all of them, all of, yeah, all of them. And it was interesting because every single one of them had a different like aspect. There's Bryn, which is like him thing about. God, remember out. the names and everything. Uh, so J- Jamie was talking about the work and how how he was doing a bit about teaching and talking about the ref. Oh, ref. Yeah. Ref. And was a particle physicist, you kind of have to, you have a gripe. I hate right. the ref, but like, it's not even just as particle physicist in general. That's podcast number two. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a different job for a different day. And then you, um, talking about with your friend, Ben, your undergrads, quite a lot, close bond. Yeah. There. It was, it was good from hearing about all of their gripe, gripes and their things about doing teaching things. or going into industry. And it's, yeah. it's really interesting. I think this is you. one of the more coherent ones I've had. Thank you. Well, when I say coherent, I mean I prepared for it and you knew what you were going to say anyway. So, all right, okay, we're just talking shit at this point. Um, well, thanks for talking anyway. Been my pleasure. What is next? What are you doing now? What we're doing now? Uh, well, actually, I'm going to go home. And if my flatmates are out, we might watch Battlestar Galactica together. We're Do you want to say that again, but properly? <laughs> <laughs> if my flatmate is home, we might watch Battlestar Galactica. There because we we're go. working way through that. So, oh really? I never got into it. My dad did, and because of that, I never got into oh, it. Oh, it's stupid! It's fun. It's no. it, it's just. You know what I'm working through at the moment? Dairy Girls. I just got put on Netflix. Seen things about Dairy Girls, yeah. Yeah, I see. I I would um I would uh, watch it on 4OD. The trouble is, I forgot my login details, and I can't be asked to change them. So I'm just gonna wait until it gets put on Netflix. But my God, it's scary. <laughs> and another great conversation wrapped up thank you Dwayne for taking the time to speak to me and going over all things LHC and community or its absence in academia remember be good to each other look after each other check up on each other it's good to be nice thank you listener for listening and making it to the end and listening to my rambling nonsensical rants about this that and the other um and that's pretty much all i want to say remember you can get in touch at uh, highsidepodgmail.com and the facebook page humanity and science i'm going to keep doing these a little while longer until things really start to take off with the old thesis but until then thank you for listening uh keep in touch do get in touch feedback is good it's helpful and look after each other Okay, take care.